You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. And I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people who love theater so much that, fun fact, everyone, it's Pride Weekend, and we're seeing shows and going to the parade because we like to multitask and we love performance. However, it manifests itself. I actually canceled my Sunday show, and I'll just be drinking. Yeah. Which T-shirt will you be wearing I have that no day? Idea. Don't put pressure on me. I, feel like that's <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, we have a special Pride-themed episode for you today, where we're going to be talking about musicals and like our, some of our favorite queer actors working today. Yep. First up, we're going to be talking about the secret life of bees at Atlantic Theater Company. Then we're going to Broadway to discuss Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune at the Broadhurst Theater, and we are wrapping up with In the Green at Lincoln Center's LCT3. Yeah, and then after we have two a dual interview that we did with people from two different shows. We talked to Caitlin Cunin of The Prom, currently playing on Broadway, and we also talked to Larry Owens of A Strange Loop, which is currently playing off-Broadway. I don't think we planned this, Jose, but it, it kind of worked out beautifully. This, I feel like this is, this is an all-musical theater episode, because even though Frankie and Johnny is a play, there is a lot of music in it, and Audrey even hums a little bit. Oh, I planned it. <laughs> well, at least one of us has a long-term vision for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says pride more than musicals. At the, end, at the end of the show, we have some opinions about the movie adaptation of The Prom. So we're, we're going to give you all of our opinions about queerness today, except not really because I'm not queer, and so that would be inappropriate. I know my place. Have you ever had like a girl fling? No, actually. Oh, wow. No, no, I'm in... Gold star straight. Yeah, I'm incredibly hetero, which I have very mixed feelings about these days. Would if I could, but I can't. Yeah, just don't go to the straight parade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, there is no such thing as straight pride except... For- Dan Savage says this. There's no such thing as straight pride except for Halloween. Amen. And if you're in Boston, I guess. Yeah, and if you're in- Don't go to straight pride in Boston. If you're listening to this podcast, don't be a douchebag. Just dress up just dress up like a slut on Halloween like everybody else. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast <laughs> would even consider going to a straight pride parade. Yay. So thank you, listeners. We have such good faith in our listeners. Okay. So first off, let's talk about some musicals. We're going to first talk about The Secret Life of Bees at Atlantic Theater Company. It's a new musical with book by Lynn Nottage, music by Duncan Sheik, lyrics by Susan Birkenhead, and it's based on a 2002 novel by Sue Monk Kidd, which was also turned into a film in 2008. So I guess every 10 years we get The Secret Life of Bees adaptation that we deserve. <laughs> 
Um, if you don't know the story, In the Secret Life of Bees is set in 1964 in South Carolina. The main character is Lily Owens, a poor white 14-year-old whose mother is dead and whose father is a racist and a beater. And she runs away with her black maid, Rosaline, and they find themselves... And they come upon a house, a pink house, where three sisters live, not the Chekhov kind, the kind who raises bees, and these three sisters teach Lily and Rosaline how to be courageous and to find their voices. What's interesting about The Secret Life of Bees? Um, what, first of all, did, did you, Jose, how much do you know about the story? Have you read the book or seen the movie? I've watched the movie. Okay. I haven't done either of those things. I have to admit, I thought about reading The Secret Life of Bees, but then I realized I read The Help and it sounded kind of similar and, and I, The Help is a very problematic book. It's a very common trope, you know, it's the it's the black mammies teaching, you know, the white girl about life, which can be very problematic. I think Lynn Nottage really threaded the line carefully. Every character gets their own moment because there's only one white character and she's in a house with like five different black characters and they all get their own song and they all have their own time to like to have a personality that's independent of her and that's really essential when you're dealing with these complex dynamics it's important to give people personalities that's not that's not just rooted in their relationships to each other and there are some like and i was i was like reading up on everything about the book and there was and the really i think the really really valuable thing that lynn did was one of the sisters in the book she kills herself and in but she and in this musical i'm not spoiling it for you when i say she does not do that she finds hope and you know figures out how to go continue living in a very aggressive world and i think that's really valuable especially in this day and age like you can't have a black woman killing herself because the world is racist. All of these women are so multifaceted that I kind of... it's This is the problem with the source material. I wanted the show to be about them and how they found their business instead of it being about Lily, but we can't do anything about that, so we're just going to enjoy what we have. I think yeah. the show is about that, I, because I think that there's a lot of it that becomes coded in a way, and for me at least, Lily White becomes uh, an afterthought after a while. And the story does not really, even though the plot centers on what's happening to her, because she goes missing and people are looking for her and she's like a fugitive, but we know she's going to be all right because she's white. So, and then Nottage's book, what happens is that we get this like beautiful portraits of what black life is like, and especially black women's lives and the show after a while, I forgot about the white girl after a while. Like she was to the side. And the moments when she comes back, I felt were Lynn Nottage's way of telling white people in the audience, relax, relax, it's going to be fine. There's a white person here, breathe. And then she goes again, and it's back to one of the liveliest, most beautiful musicals that I've seen in years. Um, I love how much of it also has queer subtext in that we're seeing a community built entirely by women 
And they even reject the notion at times. There's one of the sisters who's being wooed by some dude. And what's going on in their community is so women-centered that she doesn't even want to get married. And good for her. Like, they don't... No one makes a big deal about this. And we also get to see a lot of how women, again, especially black women, seek uh, spirituality to find logic in a world that's so chaotic. And a lot of what the characters do is this beautiful worship of a black Madonna. And I don't, I don't know if I have ever seen a black version of the Virgin Mary on stage. And just for that reason itself, I thought this musical was more than worth going to. What did you think of the score? I actually think it was like one of like Duncan Sheik's m- most listenable scores, you know, right next to Alice by Heart. I think I think like what he's been doing this year has been really like it's taken his composer his composing talents to like a new level in terms of just like variety of musical styles. He's breathtaking. He, yeah, like my favorite Duncan Sheik is by far American Psycho, and I love the electronic sounds in that. But what he does when he has like actual, there's like a whole, it was like a freaking Beyonce concert. It's like a whole section of the orchestra that was just Mm -hmm. brass and like trumpets and saxes. And that makes me so happy. And I love how he was able to combine influences from music from the South because there's like a little bit of a country uh, twang to it. There's also some gospel. But my favorite thing is that in the songs when the women worship the uh, Black Madonna, he uses a lot of African beats mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. samba, and there's some yeah. fado, and it's just this beautiful combination of world music that, without saying it out loud in the text, gives a subtext about how these women are carrying their musical heritage, like in their souls, like in their blood. No, those were some of the best moments in the show for me when, when they were those scenes of worship when they had the African drums come out. And I do not know who was the, who was the female drummer who was doing that, but it was such a genius idea to have her be forefronted in the right next to the actors. So, you know, like, Oh, this is the personification of the Madonna. What was the audience like in your, uh, during your performance? Uh, I, I did. I had a Saturday night audience. It was pretty mixed, though a lot more black people than is usually at the Atlantic, but still very much white. Like it's sixty percent white. But what was the energy like? They like leapt to their feet afterwards. Like they were clapping along during those the worship scenes. Everyone. So. Not everyone, like 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 about you know like twenty five percent of the house, which is which is still a lot for the Atlantic. It is because one of the things that I found really um, interesting about the show is that it's a show about worshiping women and worshiping black women, and the Atlantic. In case you haven't been, the Linda Gross Theater is inside what you see a, a church. So the entire premise of the not the premise, but the entire you know, building, I guess, and where the show takes place is a place of worship. And my audience was probably like 85% white and no one was moving anything. Mm. I was like tapping my knee and like tapping my feet. And this is a musical that I feel called for a moment where we were allowed to leave our seats and worship with them. It was, I found it so hard to stay put 
when they were singing to yeah, the virgin. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was like, I was like the only one in my area like swaying along to it. It was very odd. But the people in the middle were having a great time. Bless their hearts, and I hope everyone <laughs> who goes see this show, you know, just applaud. It, it was so muted, and I don't know if if it was because the white people were uncomfortable because the show talks a lot about all the damage that racism does um, still today. Maybe mm-hmm. they were uncomfortable, but I I would have loved to see it with like a livelier, uh, less white audience because that must be magical. Yeah. Which is why I was so. When I saw the ticket prices for this, I realized it was why there weren't more black people in the audience. Because if you would like to go see the Secret Life of Bees, tickets are one hundred six dollars to one twenty six. So that's a problem. Maybe there's discounts. If there are, let us know. But. The Secret Life of Bees runs until July 21st. Our second show we're going to be talking about is Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune by Terrence McNally, currently playing at the Broadhurst Theater, where Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon play two people on their first date, and they just had sex, and she is trying to get him to leave, and he refuses to leave because he wants... This to be more than a one-night stand, and in the span of two hours, they find mutual connection within each other and, you know, acknowledge their imperfections as people and begin what, is, what will hopefully be a rewarding relationship. Who knows? It's, it feels slightly open-ended. It was just a two-hour rumination about relationships. I don't, this is one of those plays where I don't understand why I was seeing it because it's like I liked it. The performances, the performances were good. They had, they had chemistry. I followed the character interactions the entire time. I, one, I do not understand why it had to be two hours. It could have been 90 minutes and I would have gotten the exact amount of emotion and character development that they were giving me and two i think i just expect these days when a man refuses to leave a woman's apartment he probably has a really dark secret or he wants to kill her and the fact that michael shannon someone who i've only ever seen play really creepy men was in this role i kept expecting something else to happen then nothing else happened and then i thought okay well that was i leave the theater basically feeling like this is a thing that happened that was nice and that's my summation of the show but that's like your problem with all the shows that don't have like clear endings it's, no, the ending is very clear. It was just... Mm, but you said it was open-ended just minutes ago. Well, it, it is kind of open-ended in that, you know, are they going to ma- get married and live happily ever after? Who knows? I mean, life is mysterious. Yeah. Cause, so what did you want from the Nothing. Play? Nothing. It was just... I felt it was fine. Oh, right. It was a fine production. So the play is on Broadway because it's Terrence McNally's 80th birthday. And mm-hmm. I would love to ask him why he chose this play to bring back, uh, especially when he's known as one of the most prominent openly gay playwrights in, in American theater. 
he has been working for decades. And I was like, huh, it's, it's, it's interesting that he brought, you know, a straight romance to the stage. But I loved this production so much. I think it's my favorite play that I've seen this year, probably. And I found it incredibly romantic and sweeping. And the reason why is that, uh, yes, obviously, I am not, I would never disagree with you on the point that creepy men should leave women alone. And they should leave everyone alone. It's like, if someone wants to get out of their house, leave the house. But when we go see art, I think that we have at some point to suspend our disbelief. And considering that the show is still set in the 80s, they have not updated it 2000 to 2019. Mm-hmm. It's still like 1987. And what I've always found so moving about this play is that it shows us uh, the lengths that people will go to to avert loneliness because for instance yes she tells him you should leave and he doesn't but there's also a scene when she threatens to leave the house and she's like i'm gonna leave and when i'm back i don't want you here and then you ask yourself like why doesn't she do that and go call the cops and they'll take him out um are you asking me if I yeah. thought of that? No, because I think at that point I had bought into what the play was asking of me, which is to not think of it in terms of threat of sexual violence, but to think of it as a romance. Right. This was yeah, they were going to end up together, and she was going to struggle the entire way until he shows her what romance is, which is fine, just not realistic. Right. And for me, the, the show has always been this like really exciting depiction of the 80s, because in the 1980s, by the time the play was produced on Broadway for the first time, like the AIDS crisis was at its peak and mm-hmm. gay men especially were dropping like flies. And I feel that I, um, you know, I obviously can't say that this is true, but this is what I feel as a gay man how much of the art made before being gay was more acceptable is coded. And there are elements in the show, especially the one night stand aspect of it and how we put so much pressure on how this one seemingly perfect night has to turn into this beautiful, like life uh, long romance is very true of gay dating today. And I'm not saying necessarily that it means that Frankie who's, played beautifully by Audra McDonald is a gay man. You know, she's not, the character's not necessarily coded as a gay man, but their interactions, like the way, you know, that sex becomes their primary currency at first and how they are so afraid to open up to each other is what I've always found uh, beautiful about it. I've always thought of this play as, you know, again, thinking New York in the 80s, people were dying from AIDS. Reagan was destroying huh. the world. It was one of the most dangerous cities in the entire country. And the way that I've always seen this play is that it's a play about two, like the the last two people. It's been the end of the world, and these are the last people left alive. And how when they find each other, they are so desperate to share beauty with each other and to just be with each other that they're willing to overlook clear signs of this guy's psychopath right and also on his side clear signs of maybe this woman 
doesn't love me. Like she's not ready for this. She doesn't want commitment because she keeps talking about how all she wants is an omelet and to watch uh, John Wayne movies on TV. So I I also love how the um, there's a there's a, an extra character in the play, and it's a DJ on the radio who at one point Frankie calls and he asks the DJ to please play them the most beautiful music in the world and I mean just it's in the title of the play <laughs> so you don't need to be like a rocket scientist to figure out what it is but I feel that the play is exactly that like I think that Terence McNally probably posed this question to the universe when he saw his friends and his colleagues and his lovers just like dying and he probably said I want to I want to hear I want to listen to the most beautiful music on earth and I think that's how he ended up writing this play yeah well I mean and it's very it's very old fashioned to me and very optimistic in that the like when every when everything is difficult and doesn't make sense like the most the most courageous thing people can do is to love each other but yeah. I, also something else that i really love about uh trans mcnally's writing is that he dances dangerously but beautifully between the lines of uh being threatened and there's obviously this physical threat that johnny especially played as by michael shannon who's like eight feet tall and like a big guy there's a threat of what his physicality brings to the equation, but there's also a threat of what if this relationship doesn't work? And there's a sense of doom, both emotionally and also physically, which made me think that for all, you know, the queer subtext in the play, because it's written by a gay man and it's impossible mm-hmm. for you to just. I mean, detach yourself from who you are. And there's all these references also, because I saw you go, there's all these references to gay art in the mm-hmm. in the show. Mm-hmm. And there's this immediacy, right? Which with uh, queer people, I can imagine, especially in the 80s, where like, hey, we better fuck and fall in love today because we might be dead next week for all we know, right? And there is also a sense that the straight characters are relieved because they know AIDS won't get to them yet. And you notice, for instance, that they don't talk about protection. No, they don't. And it's 1987. So I love that duality in the play, that it's showing us recklessness and even, I would say, like a a death wish uh, in some way from straight people in the 80s while not ignoring that there were gay people just like vanishing but what what's interesting to me about this play though because I, I i read it as in tandem with like another 80s play that was also produced a couple months ago like that's currently still on broadway which is burn this and where it's also set in the 80s and it's also about straight people even though there were, and there's and unlike you know frankie and johnny there's like one gay character in burn this but like don't, don't you find but wouldn't you rather if we're talking about love in the eighties and da- and the and how courageous it is to love in a very tumultuous time, wouldn't it be better to just 
produce plays about gay romance and not have like straight romance be like an imperfect, you know, mirror of it. But then you're like discounting that even though these are works about straight people, they're still the work of queer writers. And by you saying, wouldn't you see this? I mean, sure. But first of all, those plays don't really exist. They, they were do. not written in the 80s. And if my argument about everything that I don't like is I wish they would have produced this instead, then we would there would be no point in doing a podcast. Of, of course. Of course. Though though I think you like you read and saw so and loved so much more of it than I did, and I just saw it as just <laughs> It like it didn't move me in the same way. Yeah, I was like, I was, I don't cry, but I was almost oh. weeping by the time it was over. I found it so beautiful. But again, like I'm a gay yeah. guy. Like there was a lot of it in there that was coded and that spoke to my, I don't know, to my veins. Yeah, and and I'm like a straight woman who's like tired of being told of straight women being told like, oh, we don't know how to love properly when most of the problem is straight men. When no one ever blames straight men for it is what I'm saying. Well, a gay yeah. guy wrote this. Exactly. Uh, uh, well, yeah. And he should know better. Anyway, it's fine. But also, like, to, to give it, like, a, you know, maybe a more positive spin for you, how did you feel about the fact that this was one of the only plays that I think the time that we lived in New York at the same time, it's one of the only plays where a woman over 40 has been, like, I love fucking and i love sex and i am so comfortable in my body that take it or leave it no i or any woman in general i think i think there are certain aspects of american entertainment that's still very puritanical and women aren't allowed to want physicality and to want something that's not just women getting married and having kids and so i appreciate that i just i these days i just do not appreciate men being the mouthpiece for how women should live their lives and this play and burn this was was just emblematic of my problems with american romantic narratives so no men writing no no men telling women what to do or live or how to live their lives well how were they how was this play telling because this play was Michael Shannon's character, Johnny, telling Audra McDonald she needs to be more hopeful and to let him into her life. And she does at the end of, at the end of that two-hour period. So I read it as her capitulating to what he knew was, like, she didn't know what was best for her, but he knew what was best for her. And, and that's why he didn't leave. But that's not fair, because they do have a two-hour argument about she telling him i'm fine just leave i'm fine just leave and he doesn't and she doesn't want him to at the end like she gives in eventually and so Bless it goes it goes into the trope of like just keep just keep say just keep staying keep sticking around even though she says no she doesn't really know what she wants and if you stick around eventually nice guy she will love you so just playing devil's advocate you don't mm-hmm. you don't think there's a single way that the guy could have turned out to be a good person in the end. No, it's not even that. It's it's more about like there's just so many tropes in American entertainment and I think it is rooted in these plays from the 80s though in the 70s like they were the beginning of that of women not women needing men to tell them how to properly live their lives. But that's in Shakespeare. That's like culturally men have yeah, been doing men, that forever. So I I'm just at a point in my life where I'm tired of it and I don't buy the romance anymore. 
And I think if you're a person who buys the romance, who can ignore all of that, then this play will just sweep you away. And if you're someone who wants something more or who's tired of it, then this play, then maybe go see something else. I'll just say, go with an open mind, and don't forget a queer person wrote this. A queer, but queer men aren't exempt from misogyny, though. No, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that you chose to ignore this, and you're angry, yelling at people, but don't... I'm not yelling at anyone. <laughs> you're like Revita right now. Well, Frankie and... Well, let us know what you think of Frankie and Johnny, and if you think I'm full shit, or... <laughs> Or not. Uh, Frankie Johnny in the Claire de Lune is running until August 25th, and tickets are 49 to $159. Our last show of this episode is In the Green, a new musical by Grace McLean, who we interviewed last year, so go check that out. This musical, playing at LCT3, tells the origin story of Hildegard von Bingen, who became one of the most Famous? I don't know if I can use the word famous, but yeah, one of the most famous saints in Christianity. And the musical is mostly centered on an episode that will spend for like 30 years of mm-hmm. poor Hildegard's life when she was given away by her parents to a convent. And she spent 30 years almost, like historians still don't know if this is accurate or if this is just metaphor because it's Christians. And she spent 30 years inside a monastery like inside a tower basically with another uh nun called judah who's played by grace mclean and basically just in this 30 years of confinement as the two women try to find a way to become whole what ends up happening is that one of them becomes holy the music by Grace McLean. I, I I have to say that I don't I don't think I knew that she was that this was her style of music because I know her work uh, and I've seen her before play, but I was so mind blown because this is I don't like using the word experimental because then like people who are more cowardly about art are not going to go, but I feel that it is one of the most experimental musicals that I have ever seen. It's kind of like, to get a sense of Grace's composing uh, style, it's kind of like Bjork meets like Imogen Heap with some like cocktail twins thrown in for good measure. And then everything comes out and it still sounds like musical theater, which was absolutely mind-blowing for me. And I love that the... You know, I, it's it's just such a smart musical. It's so intellectually exciting and challenging. Like, I, I, which is why talking about it, I feel like people are not gonna go see it because uh, the way you know, like it, it, it sounds very cerebral. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Hildegard is, you know, how like the Donna Summer musical and like the Cher musical have three different actresses play one character. And the Green kind of does that, mm-hmm. except it's not even three you know, female characters per se. It's three actresses holding parts of Hildegard. One's holding her mouth, one's holding her eye, and the other one's holding her hand. And it's as if Picasso had put (laughs) Hildegard on stage. It's this beautiful cubist approach to character. 
that again I had never seen done in a musical. I love this musical. Yeah, and uh, Huta. Uh, well, I think that's the proper way to pronounce her name. It's not a hard J sound, but well, not if it's yeah. German. So I, I know no exactly. So now you're gonna try. But but Huta Grace's character, she's also disembodied as well. There's there's two versions of her playing herself. And what I really loved about this concept was there's a lot of talk about about being whole and becoming fragmented because of trauma and how these women want to get past it, get past their respective traumas and become whole again. And so I love the genius of having different characters play the same character because it's like a literal personification of what happens of like the different voices in your head, like arguing with yourself. And also, like, the music also reflected that. The music is very, is, like, very medieval-esque in that it's very choral. And, you know, if you've, and Hildegard was a composer as well, and her, her music was very choral and, like, used in, like, a lot of high pitches. It's, it's lovely, live it, listen, I listened to it on Spotify when I was writing today. And you were listening to sacred music? I was listening to Hildegard's music on Spotify. Oh, wow, I'm mind blown right now. <laughs> I listen to a lot of choral music when I'm writing, all right? God. Anyway, and that's why all the voices speak to me in my head. Okay, that's just called insanity. <laughs> Joan. But what I loved is, like, Grace's music was reflected that. Like, she uses this um, this thing called a looping station where where you set down, you know, one piece, a note or something, and then it'll loop back, and then you can set another note, and you can, like, play it on top of each other. And she does that in this musical, and I've never heard that done in this musical, in a musical, and to do it in a way that reflects the state, the state of the character. And so, and the great, and another really ingenious thing was that, um, you know, Hildegard apparently had like a lot of visions of, holy holy visions because i get that's what saints do apparently and so so this, this musical is like a very it's a very it's a it's it's kind of like a strange loop where it's you're diving into the mind of a person and so you're not in uh you're not in a realistic space you're in like you're in a subconscious space kind of like inception there's literally an inception moment in this musical and and so if you come into it just 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 go with the emotions of what they're telling you rather than this is a thing that actually happened it also kind of actually happened too yeah i love that for a musical that's about the life of a freaking saint who's called uh, the doctor of the church which is one of the many doctors of the church it's about the a first saint. woman doctor. Yeah, and it's it's a musical about a literal saint, but it's not a musical that uh, will, you know, it's not a musical where they talk about the Bible. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. even remember the word God being uttered at any time. It's a musical that she, Grace McLean is so freaking brilliant that she manages to entice both both people with very strong spiritual beliefs. But also people who are probably, you know, non-believers at all and who would, you know, look away from anything if they hear the word, it's about a saint. And the musical is not like, it's not like Bible study at all, Mm -mm. but it's also not, not Bible study because what it does more beautifully than probably 
Sunday in the Park with George does this, and it's that it grasps what it feels like when the moment of inspiration hits, and that moment that some artists, you know, call the muse or whatever, religious people call God. And I love that the musical establishes how the routes to being whole and the route to being holy are going to the same, same, same place, but people just call them by different names. Yeah, and there's also a moment at the end, I believe, where, where Hildegard talks about like how the human body is holy, and like God is within us as well. And so, if God has, you know, three of parts of themselves, and and people also have multiple parts of themselves. Non-spoilery. What did you think of the end? The end, I think, was a beautiful way to show us that despite our best efforts. We are never get to do everything that we want to do in this life. And life just flies us by. And it told me, do as best as you can today. Because then before you know it, you're going to be stuck in a cell with another nun. And you're going to be 100 years old. Really? Because we're we're both in the same the same performance and i feel like the audience didn't quite know that was the end because i i i was like wait that's it i I need to know more like i need i need like another 90 minutes of this because i not not to resolve it but to give me more about like what happened and her and how she became like a her life outside of the cell well fortunately for us there's like tons of books written about Mm -hmm. hildegard and a lot of what she wrote is preserved and you can buy it on amazon and her writing is great she has a great book on medicine and there's stuff that you can use today right but like the last 10 minutes of it it went into the her her adult philosophies It, it happened so much and so quickly i didn't my brain couldn't catch all of it. My brain couldn't comprehend it because it's fucking philosophy. You need like hours and hours of it. And so I wanted, I, I, I needed a little break. I needed an intermission and then like the rest of the, and then the rest of the play could have resumed. But that's not the musical. This book. In the Green is playing at LCT3 until August 4th. And tickets are a very expensive $35. So run, don't walk. Um, our next uh, thing is the interview. And Caitlin and Larry talk about portraying queer characters and like how to stay positive in this business. I don't want to start a riot. I don't want to blaze a trail. I don't want to be a symbol or cautionary tale. I don't want to be a scapegoat for people to oppose. What I want is simple as far as wanting goes. I just wanna dance with you. Caitlin, Hello. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Like, I've been, you know, once I knew this was happening, it's like the 13-year-old inside me Yay. who wishes your shows had existed oh, when yeah. he was 13 has been, like, freaking out and, like, partying and... <laughs> That's amazing. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Of course. And, thank you. you know, starring in shows that are about queer youths and knowing, for instance, nowadays how I was just reading recently that... Out of like four 
teenage suicides, we are most likely going to be LGBTQ youths. And I wonder, for you playing queer lead characters in musicals, um, and knowing this, that your shows in many ways can save lives and change lives, does this add like extra responsibility to your work, or is it just like another blessing? So for me, yes. I mean, I like from day one with this project, I have felt a great responsibility just to be present and be a positive voice for these people because, it, you know, so a lot of times LGBTQ plus youth don't get represented in a positive light, especially in theater and in film and TV. And so to be able to do a piece that is meaningful and impactful and positive has been so great that I just take, I take that upon myself to just be there and be receptive and, you know, continue on with like a positive light. And that is, it's great, but it's also hard, you know, it's to have a huge responsibility is to have a huge responsibility. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I just really think about uh, playing a black gay protagonist in the musical theater and one who has a really, really huge voice and identity and a really unique one that thus becomes universal for not just black queer people, but for queer people across you know, the spectrum. And so, yeah, I take that responsibility. I feel it every yeah. night. I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> and especially because, like, I don't know in your show, but, like, for us, we have a lot of people coming up to us at the stage door or sending us fan mail via, like, Instagram or in person and just, like, telling their life stories. And you don't want to... You don't want to, like put that off. You don't want to like ignore them. You want to be able to hear them and support them. And so to be able to have to like listen to that every day is again, a huge responsibility that I take great pride in, but it also is like, okay, yeah, I got to show up and do this and be there for them. Yeah. The audience response is overwhelming. Yeah. It really is. But I'm just so happy that we're going to make a cast recording and Yay. that's oh, yeah. how, uh, you know, that's how shows find people. Yeah. And so just to know that no matter, you know, what decade or generation, you know what I mean? Hopefully queer people won't need, you right. know, won't need these yeah. oases, oasises, whatever, so badly. <laughs> but, you know, but the fact that it'll exist, you know, for people to identify with. Yeah. It just makes me really proud and happy. Yeah. The stories you're living every night would be like traumatic for anyone who has to live them once, but you're living them mm -hmm. again and again. So what's your self-care routine like <sighs> in terms of getting out of it? I want to listen to you. Oh, boy. <laughs> what do you do? I haven't found it yet. You know, I actually have had a lot of discussion with my friends lately because we announced that our show is closing August 11th, and it's like, it's... It, it's horrible that the show is closing so soon, but I also feel like I'm actually going to be Caitlin again, that I've been working on this project for five years now. And it's like, how do, how do you balance playing these characters that are hard to play and also being yourself as a human being? That's very challenging. And so it's this, I haven't figured out how to play Emma eight times a week and be Caitlin in real life yet. And so it's a very... It's taken me five years, so, like, good luck. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been four years of development, and I, you know, it's an hour and 50 minutes. I don't leave the stage, and yeah. it goes from mild to wild, uh, the experience of playing Usher. And so, 
I, I, re- I got sick over the weekend and it was a stomach bug and I kept, before I knew that, before I went to the hospital to find that out, I just kept thinking that like my body was rejecting like the usher. <laughs> yeah. But right. it was a, it was a really clarifying moment where it's just like, oh no, like you're a human yeah. and like you're like the human who brings the story to life, not the other way around. Yes. So I, yeah, I'm trying to like find hobbies mm-hmm. and find yeah. things to do during the day so that I'm not thinking about going into the world of the show. Um, We're doing something that we love so much, but in that, we're also like, wait, where did I go? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's weird, and I haven't figured it out yet. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that doesn't make me hopeful. Because we have a very short run. So, (laughs) you know, but also maybe that's that's it. I'll take that as sort of advice that, like, it may, I maybe mean, I won't figure it out. Yeah, and that's okay. You don't need to. Like as long as we show up. Yeah, as long as you show up and do your work and do good work and you're fine. Okay, we're fine. <laughs> as we both leave crying. <laughs> as much as we all love the joy of giving people, the industry tends to be very narrow-minded mm-hmm. when it comes to casting. And now that you've both played queer uh, youths as leads in musicals. Did you ever think, like, oh, shit, like, what if that's the only part that they offer me after this? Yes, but I don't care, you know? Like, I think that's something that, I don't know, it's been an interesting, like, journey for me because for a very long time I identified as a straight ally, and then I was like, well, not really, okay, whatever. Um, And it's been interesting, like, going through that and then having, like, my representatives talk about like okay well there's this other part you could play but it's also a lesbian do we really want to like have you pigeonholed in that world and it's like it doesn't matter they're characters they're people it's life like if I get pigeonholed to play a lesbian for the rest of my life that's fine you know like it would be the same as if I was getting pigeonholed to play straight people the rest of my life (laughs) you know it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's a good character it's a good character and I'm an actor and that's what I want to do you know so to me it doesn't matter and it's like also I hope there are more lesbian roles because there aren't a lot and so if people keep writing them I will keep playing them (laughs) I'm just so happy that like as I grew up that there has just been you know a smattering of visibility of LGBTQ plus actors like who are out. And so I remember growing up, like having a real fear of, of, of what will happen. Of like, of like, I have to live this straight life. And then one day, like, I'm sure someone's going to, I'm going to do something bad and they're going to find out um, that I'm gay. And so to be at this place in my life where I don't have any of that fear, yeah. where like, where there is a, some, you know, small uh, progressing system of openness. I I'm really relieved. I'm really yeah. relieved, and I'm honored to play this character because this character is a fully fleshed human being, mm-hmm. and so that's always been my intent in the musical theater. And I haven't mm-hmm. had a you know. I'm not concerned with what their sexuality is. Yeah, I'm concerned with what their story is, how well it's written, like you know, yeah. the songs that they're they're singing, the music that lives inside of them, and so. Yeah, I yeah, no fear, no fear. And this is a place of honesty and joy. And I got the range. We play lovers in a in a reading before, so yeah, we can do that as well. <laughs> but it, it's so interesting because it's like I think people also forget that like we are actors, and it is our job to embody other people, you know. And so again, it, it's like 
I will take whatever role comes at me. We can do anything. It, our creativity is our only limit. And so it's like, let's, we can do anything. I love you both so much. <laughs> I'll start crying at some point. Okay, again, all happy tears. It's fine. <laughs> what was key for you in realizing I need to be more comfortable with myself? Oh, God. Still working on it. <laughs> so I think that is a uh, step at a time process, but I do think it is just the realization of, like, as cheesy as this sounds, it's like the you are the only you, you know, and really embracing that and what makes you different is what makes you individual and not being afraid of that and just being like trying to accept that and be who you are in your full form. I've had the privilege of, of navigating through a bunch of different worlds, coming from East Baltimore into a sort of a boarding school environment of like, you know, very she-she people and into the world of theater people. And so I've always been looking for that constant and, and amongst like humans. And like, it really is just that we all have a desire to be loved and to love. Mm -hmm. And then we all of our behavior stems from like that desire. And so I really, the moment that I found that unified core, I was able to like identify what I loved, which was the theater and like how I love people, which is enacting. <laughs> so I, so that's been a huge, it's been a huge part of, of, I think crystallizing my identity is just by making it simple, making it plain and then putting the work like all the effort of fear just like into the work. Cause once I was using that energy directed towards something, like I was so much happier. Yeah. In the prom, four Broadway actors come cause they want to rescue uh -huh. Emma. Yeah. And in a strange loop, Usher is obsessed with all this, uh, white girl, you know, white divas that he like summons to save him through whatever, uh, you know, whatever he's going through. And I wonder, I mean, like, as you can see, like, I had, like, Judy, like, all over me. <laughs> and I think that, that many people, especially when they're uh, conflicted and they're, you know, like, thinking about the way to come out or when teens are depressed or whatever, they find, like, some holy, mm -hmm. almost saintly figure. And I wonder for you, when you were teenagers, who were those figures that you held on to? Um... I honestly didn't have one, you know? I think I I had a very weird, like, childhood and teenage years and, like, it was just focused. I was working and I was focused on work and I really did not experience any normal teenage <laughs> things. So I think, like, that question is, like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't have that, you know? My, you like, were busy. I was busy trying to be an actress. <laughs> it worked. Um, it worked. No, but, like, I just, I was so focused on, like, things that an adult should have been focused on. I wasn't focused on, like, having an escape in my life. I had so many, and they were all in the theater. I, <laughs> Hairspray was, like, was the musical that, like, coming from Baltimore, I was oh, like, oh, yes. my God. And it was the first time I realized that Broadway happened every night, mm -hmm. that it wasn't just, like, movie musicals. And so <laughs> I would put on the cast recording at 8 o'clock every night. It's like, and I knew everyone's, everyone's bio, like, in the ensemble. Like, and I was just, like, 
it was like an acolyte of that show. And then that led me to like the work of Stephen Sondheim, which like became like the standard bearer for the work that I wanted to do in the musical theater. And just like all of like the various like amazing women of the theater. Audra McDonald, I love. Mary Testa, my absolute queen. I cannot believe I work at Playwrights Horizons where she did In Trousers, which is a very little known built in musical, but that I would listen to in high school over and over and over again. And again, just like standard bearing for complexity, for, you know, like non-mainstream ideas of success, mm-hmm. of like, it was just like work with a capital W. What's kept you going in this industry? Like, Caitlin, you've worked since you were 10, and Larry, you, you do comedy, and you have a podcast. Yeah. Like, what's the propelling force for you? This is the only thing I know how to do, and it is what I love, and I don't even like, like, there is no other option. You know, so this is what I have to do. And it's not like there's no other option of like, oh, well, I can't like fall back on anything else. But it's like, no, this is what makes me a human being. Yeah, I think just, you know, when I moved to New York City, I didn't want to be here unless I was doing it and fortunately like that means that has like a lot of different mm-hmm. meanings mm-hmm. into it so and once I trained at the Steppenwolf Theater Company which they teach you how to do everything and like improv is a part of the curriculum so when they were like come and be a comic you know I was like okay like <laughs> yes and and, and <laughs> when it's time to do the, the show like I have resources to call upon you know doing a play or a musical or any style so it's yeah I've just been like sort of waiting for like a great failure just like to send me home you know what I mean as sort of like the line of demarcation yeah, but yeah. The, well, fortunately we successes pile on and so and definitely I, I wanted to see see this piece through a strange loop we mm-hmm. we I started the development of it at a converted porn studio above the drama bookshop four years ago at the musical oh. theater factory and it was a far cry I mean geographically close, but a far cry um, from Playwrights Horizons where we are now. But for the moment that Michael R. Jackson sent me the piece, I just knew that it was special and that this was a role for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like for me as I as I look behave and operate now and that was such a huge gift <laughs> when you develop it and then yes, let you do the play yeah, like, <laughs> put your heart and soul into something for so long and then you actually get to do it you get to you know? do it on stage like, that is something that like, keeps you going is that you get these like little nuggets of like wonderful and you're like oh there's more of that we gotta mm-hmm. keep going we're keep find going. more of that and then you get these projects that you get to work on for years and then they finally happen and come to like full fruition and it's like oh my god this is why we're doing it yes. I don't know if you read reviews and if I should say this but you got like great reviews for playing Usher in, in A Strange Loop oh my god and you have your first yeah. Tony nomination yeah. oh so fingers crossed I know you're both gonna be <laughs> In this industry forever. Yes, yes. Make it happen, universe. Um, But, you know, now that we're at that exciting moment when theater is starting to open its mind and we're seeing gender banding, color conscious casting, are there any parts in musicals, because I love hearing you sing, are there any parts (laughs) in classic musicals that maybe, you know, 15 years ago you never thought? I'm going to play that someday. And now you're like, I'm going to make it happen. You know, I, like, 
for me, no. I I was very privileged. I am very privileged. I am a cis white female, and that has granted me a lot of privileges in my life. And so, unfortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, there hasn't been any of that. There, the world of musical theater is mine to take, and that is unfortunate because it needs to change. There needs to be more roles for others involved and so like they're really for me it's like every dream role that I have I can potentially play Mm -hmm. which sounds so like shitty in this context but it's like do better writers of musical theater keep going so yeah yeah yeah. musical theater factory like that was my bread and butter for for the years before I fell into comedy and it was just being with these amazing young composers who, you know, in say like the fifties, like these would be like the crack composing teams that you would <laughs> run to to write, you know, the next big musical and and their ideas are just so beautiful and big and their melodies linger and so like Michael R. Jackson is like a part of a coterie of like artists who whose work I've been doing in a capacity where they've been seeing me for my fullness since yeah. they met me so I would love to do their shows yeah. on big stages and and yes of course if like the Sondheim canon is ready to open its eyes its <laughs> arms to me I will take one of those jobs that I've been studying for like vigorously in my thank you yes <laughs> I will, yeah I I'm yeah I'm very much into just like excellence so like any sort of like bar like I'm just like anxious to yeah, just to like climb you know mm-hmm. that's a mixed metaphor but it's okay I'm a comedian um, you can climb a bar <laughs> yeah 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 new stuff yeah, let's just do yeah. let's just have young writers have their work on Broadway yeah. and mm-hmm. and around Broadway right. and, and just like yeah prominently featured yeah yeah I mean, what do you what do you want to see from the industry in terms of representation on stage or people who need to, you know, be produced? Yeah, I say this all the time. I I, I think that there because like going into the comedy space and just seeing how like thirsty people are just to like watch something just to engage and like see see themselves reflected like it doesn't always have to be this big formal expensive thing yeah. it, like there's i think there's a, a a model out there that can get you know people not that even we even need people people are coming this is a record breaking year yeah. and it, it's more mm-hmm. people went to the Broadway theater than to baseball games so yeah. it's like i think there is a a reinvestigation of like how we think of ourselves as theater and and how how we can pitch ourselves as being valuable as being yeah. relevant as being all of these things that like we already are mm-hmm. and i want to reverse oligarchic seating structure i mm-hmm. want the cheapest seats to be in the front yes. so that that's who's interacting with the actors and then i want the rich people in the royal boxes like shakespeare <laughs> yes so yeah. that so that they can look on from above and they can make their judgments but i want the people feeding yeah. the actors to be to have like so much warmth and desire to be there yeah I just want us to keep going you know I think we've made such great strides in the right direction I just want people to see that and see that that is successful and what needs to be done and keep going keep writing roles for the LGBTQ plus community keep telling stories that haven't been told that's what theater is is telling stories so keep telling them 
how are you celebrating Pride this year? Because you both have matinees, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are you doing? Well, we get to do a matinee, and then we are incredibly honored because we get to perform at the uh, closing ceremony. Oh, and so, nice. yeah. So we do our matinee, and then we go to Times Square, and we get to perform a number from our show, and it's really exciting, and we're all just like thrilled to be a part of it because that's so incredible. Like, how awesome to like celebrate Pride with a show that like is so inclusive and wonderful and just a positive like light in the world, and we get to do that for everyone. And so, like, I'm, I'm really excited for that's that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I will be doing two shows as Usher. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a triumph of the queer <laughs> will. <laughs> Slash your vocal cords. Yeah, yeah really, though. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to invite our viewers to see your shows? Yeah, I mean, you have seven weeks to see mine, so come on over. August 11th is your last chance. And you have about as many of those seven <laughs> weeks to come and see mine. Yes. Uh, July 28th is your current last chance. Woo-hoo. Thank you both so much and happy Pride. Happy Happy Pride! So, uh, speaking of musicals, have you all heard that the prom is co- the musical is being adapted into a movie for Netflix? And we all thought it was going to be like a filmed version of the stage musical, but it's not. What is it, Jose? Well, I didn't think that. I thought that. Uh, the second Brian Murphy was attached, I thought Jessica Lange would play all the characters. <laughs> So, yeah, I and ne- Evan Peters. <laughs> I, yeah, I never thought it was going to be a film version of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there's always a lot of. Uh, I don't know. I, we, I don't know why people are disappointed when this happens because it happens all the time. Like Hollywood is a money making machine, and as mm-hmm. much as I love Broadway performers, they are not going to hire the same Broadway performers to do a movie version it just never happens and every time it happens people are like how is this happening and i'm like just brush up on your history the cast of the prom will include meryl streep who's going to be playing the beth level character nicole kidman james corden and ariana grande had said no people had said ariana grande was going to do it and then hours later ariana grande said she was not doing it (gasps) so oh yeah so, I mean, until I see the movie, like, we don't know what's actually, who's actually going to be in it or whatever. But uh, were you really surprised that they were not going for the Broadway people? Not really. I don't, have, I don't really have an opinion about what about casting Broadway actors in, in Hollywood movies because most of the time it doesn't happen. And if they are, they usually cast in the side roles. What seems interesting to me about this, about the prom, though, is, like, all the care, all the... Act, actors announced are playing older characters are playing the parents and so who's playing you know caitlin's role 
in the in the movie version, I'm assuming it has to be like some kind of unknown queer performer because if they don't cast any queer performers, I feel like the community is going to be very disappoint, upset. Yeah, they were already upset that James Corden is going to be playing the Brooks Ashmanka's role, who's like a big gay character. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Maybe they'll do like a big search. And mm-hmm. get they a, need to do a big search. Actor to play Emma. Yeah, or I've just have Caitlin do it. I mean, sure, that would be wonderful. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know how the industry works. Do you think because people were pissed off, is that why Ariana Grande stepped down so abruptly? I think she was probably never in it, but people just assumed she was going to be in it. <laughs> And and Andrew Reynolds is going to be also in the, mm, in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the things that people criticize Hollywood for is when they do movie adaptations of musicals and they say, but they're getting actors who can't sing. And in this case, all the actors they got all the actors are can great sing. singers. Like I was, you know, I didn't know that Twitter was going to be so upset about it. But when I saw <laughs> Meryl Streep is going to be playing this part and she has this incredible song. And the first thing I thought was like, I cannot wait to see Meryl Streep doing this song. I also don't feel like characters should be, you know, I don't feel like actors should be tied forever just to one specific character. I get very excited. And I know that Meryl Streep's like in everything and people are always saying she's overrated and blah, 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 blah. Meryl Streep is not overrated. Who says that? People say that a lot. But, but you know, it's Meryl Streep. Like, I saw it and I was like, I cannot wait to see Meryl Streep doing this. Like, I love Beth Level and but I, I knew that they were not going to get the same actress. Like, I was not surprised at all. I'm just surprised Netflix can af- can afford Meryl Streep. Can they though? <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised Netflix can af- can afford that entire cast. Like, where is all this money coming from? I mean, the great thing about Netflix is because they have no quality control. Like, Brian Murphy will probably get to do whatever he wants for the prom. And the great thing about that is it's already written, so he and so Ryan Murphy can't he can't mess it up. No, and the, there's a cast recording out there, mm-hmm. and you know people can listen to the cast recording. It's not like you know, like Beth's performance and Brooke's performance. It's not like they're disappearing. Like it's not that they're vanishing and they're being like obliterated. Um, you know, Hairspray had a movie version, but people still listen to the cast recording. It's not you know. And I don't. They yeah, they'll see the show. Yeah, maybe once people stop being angry at the casting people. They're just going to be excited about the fact that there's going to be a musical about queer people on Netflix within the next two years. That makes me very happy. I'm just happy that places like Netflix and also and Marvel is like doing plays now. Like these big corporations are investing in theater and so for everyone who keeps on saying this is a dead art form and no one cares about it, you're wrong. People do care about it. They just can't afford to go see it. So I'm just glad it, it's gonna, there's going to be an accessible version of the prom that people can actually watch. I do want to mention something about the prom closing, though, because mm. both the prom and Be More Chill are going to be closing. Um, at, around the same time. Yeah. And this two day, musicals were musicals that were made for teenagers. And did you go back to see Be More Chill on Broadway? No. I never got the invite for it. But Thanks, do you remember? People. But do you remember when we saw it off Broadway? Oh my God. Weren't we the oldest people in the theater? Yeah. I loved that. 
Me I've too. never been the oldest person in the theater, and I really resent like all of the people who reviewed Be More Chill being like, "What do these kids like? Why is it so popular? Like, I didn't like it, and no one, re- no one ever thinks about." Maybe things just aren't for me, and maybe I don't understand it because I'm not the audience this piece was made for. And so I would have loved to read like a review of Be More Chill from an actual teenager. Yes, you should take in your. You should get on that, Jose. Me? I'm, I don't have any. Your children. niece? Oh, my poor girl. Um, <laughs> she's she's always grounded. But anyway, but why, why I wanted to talk about that was because. Yeah, people complain when this show's closed. And I did go back to see Be More Chill on Broadway. And it was not as exciting as when I saw it, as when we saw it off Broadway. And the reason for that, I think, has a lot to do with ticket prices. Oh, the signature, tickets are very affordable. And I can imagine a teenager asking their parents, like, can I have, you know, I don't know, like... A hundred bucks to mm-hmm. go to the theater and get my ticket and maybe get a soda or whatever. I don't know what kids do. I don't know. I'm old. While on Broadway, tickets are over a hundred dollars. So, was the I, audience dead on Broadway? Not only dead, they were old mm. and not old like in a bad way because you know we're not old. teenagers. But even worse, they were teenagers with like old, 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 old companions. And I feel that that sucks the air out of the room. Because, like, be, be, uh, behind me at Be More Chill, there were two teenage girls with their grandfather who spent the entire two hours of the musical asking them, what does this mean? What are they saying? This is so loud. And banging, <laughs> banging my seat. So I feel that because of the ticket prices and because they had to go with an adult who was not going to be like, sure, here's like a thousand dollars to go see some Broadway shows. Teenagers were stifled. Like their energy was gone. Even, you know, Be More Chill is such a modern looking show. It was so sleek and so sci-fi-ish and Be More Chill playing in the Lyceum, which is one of the oldest theaters on Broadway, just felt, felt like what the Broadway experience felt like, like adults wanting to take over something that was not meant for them. And there's a difference between something made for teenagers and something that might appeal to teenagers. Cause even, you know, like we loved, well, we enjoyed mean girls, but because now we're old, like we, ha- we, you know, be uh, mean girls was not made for us today. It was made for us, from 2004 ago. yeah but now we're old and now we can go see it uh you know like yeah it's t- from millennials yeah yeah we could probably afford the tickets mm-hmm. but teenagers when they have shows made for them today they can't go but then again though well what's that's uh, but you know disney shows aren't for adults they're for little kids and and me and wicked it, ha- it wicked's primary demographic are is also teenage girls who can also take their parents who can pay for it but so like so what's that that those shows apart from be more chill like why weren't the teens just why couldn't there be more teens begging their parents to take them to take them to be more chill like why is this why did this close and frozen's still running because the frozen is disney like you know it's like a known property like everyone knows frozen everyone knows disney so parents know if they can tolerate the music for instance like i know parents who when the movie came out they were like i'm gonna kill myself and set the city on fire if i have to listen to let it go once more but by the time the show opens on broadway they are so 
used to hearing the song that they're like, sure, I've heard this song a thousand times before. What's one more time going to do? So they know it. It's the same reason why Hollywood keeps making comic book movies and sequels because people know the property already. With the Wiz- I mean, with Wicked, people know The Wizard of Oz. So families could come see it and like grandpa knew Judy Garland and, you know, the parents probably grew up on The Wiz. So it's, they know what it was, but shows like Be More Chill and The Prom, which are for young people, they don't know the property. They don't know the songs. I mean, Be More Chill was a viral sensation, but I don't think people, even our age or people older than us were listening to Be More Chill like well, during carpool or whatever. But at the same time, though, isn't it, isn't but isn't that, I don't see like Be More Chill's problem as, as like a very specific problem. I, I, I think it's like endemic of an, of like a general Broadway problem of people, of ticket buyers not taking risk on unknown properties unless it has like awards next to it or some kind of like measure measure of value right but in this case it makes me in this case specifically it makes me sadder because we saw it on broadway and we saw how cool that would have been Mm -hmm. or maybe just like some things aren't meant for a bigger house and perhaps there it should have they should have put be more chill in the new uh what's that venue where avenue q was uh, uh, New World Stages. Yeah, maybe they should put at New World Stages where it didn't, it didn't, where you could still keep ticket prices low and you don't have to fill 500 seats every night. Right, because I'm thinking like you're a rent head, right? Yes. Yeah. So like, can you imagine? Question mark. Can you imagine if you had, got, if you were like of age, if you were like 16 or whatever, and when Rent came out, right? Is that a show that you would have wanted to go see with your mom? No. Right. So that's my point. Like, like but Rent still played on Broadway though. And no, sold I, really well. I'm just I'm just trying to find like but it wasn't made for teens, so that's not a good but you know, like this show was made for teens. Like it's not made for like their parents and their grandparents. Right. So if if something doesn't have like cross generational appeal, I don't see how it can survive on Broadway. Yeah, maybe don't go to Broadway and don't go to Broadway. Like Be More Chill should have played for years because I wanted all the young people I know to mm-hmm. go see it. Maybe t- t- put it, kick out Avenue Q. Avenue Q is gone. New World Stages is open. Put it there and it'll run forever. Yeah. And the same for the yeah. prom. Like, I, I would have loved to see the show. You know, like, I took my niece to the prom and she loved it. And I was a bit, because I'm older, I was a bit more cynical about it, but she flat out loved it. So, what I, maybe my suggestion would be if you're going to make shows meant for young people to see, make sure that there's a way that they can go see them and make the tickets affordable. And make it not seem like they have to bring a freaking old-ass chaperone with them so they can enjoy it with their friends. Yeah. Or just make tickets more affordable to begin with. But, you know, we, we say that all the time here on Token Theater, friends. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Happy Pride. Do you have any special Pride affirmations you want to give to our listeners? Go out and be fabulous. All right. Uh, Remember to subscribe, review, tell your friends about Token Theater Friends, and have a good weekend. Remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. Bye. Bye.